continuing with our reading of individuation in the light of notions of form and information, we're starting chapter three of part one uh, on form and substance. So maybe just a warning about this chapter is that this is probably the most difficult chapter in terms of the sort of prerequisites for it. Um, we're going to, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to get to the part on quantum mechanics, which, uh, and uh, one particular interpretation of quantum mechanics that, that is not the uh, the standard one as well. Be prepared for that. It might be a good idea to uh, take a look at the Wikipedia page on, on quantum mechanics and, and try to get a, a little bit of a sense of what's going on before we get to that part of the reading. But uh, for today, I think it should be a little bit easier or a little bit less scientifically intensive uh, compared to what we're going to get to in a couple weeks. Okay, so I'll start reading um, and then we'll go around as usual. So chapter three, form and substance, uh, section one, continuous and discontinuous, subsection one, functional role of discontinuity. The Socratic injunction whereby reflexive thought was asked to return to heed the call of ethics instead of physics has not been accepted in all philosophical traditions. According to Plato's expression, the sons of the earth have remained stubborn in their search through the knowledge of physical nature to find the unique solid principles for individual ethics. Lucifus and Democritus had already shown the way. Epicurus establishes his moral doctrine on the basis of a physics, and this same approach can already be seen at work in Lucretius's magnificent didactic and epic poem. But it is worth noting that one of the primary characteristics in the relation between philosophy and physics for the ancients is the ethical conclusion is that the ethical conclusion is already presupposed in physical principle. Physics is already ethics. The atomists necessarily define their ethics within their physics when they turn the atom into a substantial and limited being that passes through different combinations without changing. The composite has a level of reality inferior to the simple, and this composite that man is will be wise if he knows and accepts his own temporal, spatial, and energetic limitation. It has been said that the atom is minted Iliadic being, and in fact, as Parmenides reveals in his poem, which is a narrative of its initiation into being, the rounded and coined spiros, happy in its circular plenitude, fragments ad infinitum into the atoms. But it is always immutable matter, whether one or multiple, that confines being. The relation between the atoms of being made possible due to the introduction of the void, which is substituted for the negativity of Parmenidian becoming, has no veritable interiority. Lawlessly emerging from countless dice throws, Relation conserves through its existence the essential precariousness of its constitutive conditions. For the atomists, relation depends on being, and nothing substantially grounds it in being. Emerging from a, a Kleinemann without finality, relation remains pure accident, and only the infinite number of encounters in the infinity of elapsed time has been able to lead to many viable Consequently, there is no case in which the human composite can attain substantiality. He can avoid relations which, due to their groundlessness, are necessarily destructive and snatch for him the little time he has to exist by bringing him to think on death, which has no substantial reality. The state of ataraxia is a state in which the human composite concentrates on himself as much as possible and leads him to the closest state of substantiality that he can possibly attain. The Templa Serena Philosophiae makes it possible to construct not a veritable individuality, but the state of the composite conceivably closest to the simple. Um, so here we're starting this is a sort of a, a, a new beginning um, of, the, of the problematic of individuality, because here he's pointing to um, the relationship between uh, physics and ethics with respect to the individual. Um, 
and uh, he points to the uh, atomistic school, and then he's going to discuss the the stoic school um, afterwards, and and show that they um, have roughly the same, even though they have uh, opposite visions of uh, physics, they end up having a, a almost the same um, conception of ethics with respect to the individual. In ancient philosophy, the ethical um, priorities or the or the ethical um, principles governing the, the individual um, are, are sort of dominating over the uh, physics of the individual. The, the ethics, the ethics is, is of an individual as a sort of self-contained, um, self-orienting substance, um, and that, that same substantiality is uh, applied in the physics as well. So in the case of the atomists, it's the atoms that have the, the there are individuals in the proper sense they're in the, they're the simple uh, entities um, that uh, have individuality um, and then it's only through um, the the Kleine men uh, that we end up with composite individuals um, which are uh, only in a secondary sense individuals and so the the Kleine men for those who um, I think we discussed this early on uh, when we were reading the introduction, but for those who who may have missed that, um, the Kleine men is uh, um, in uh, 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 uh. the Kleine men is in um, atomic physics uh, the um, the notion that uh, the atoms falling in the void have to uh, have a, a swerve um, in their falling so that they can. Uh, join each other uh, and, and form individuals in the composite sense. So uh, the atoms falling in the void are, are falling vertically, and then there's this swerve that brings them into contact with each other and brings about the formation of composite individuals. And that's, that's the client men. Uh, so it's the, the client men is uh, the principle that governs the formation of uh, uh, composite individuals. Um, and then in the ethics, the uh, behavior of the um, of the of the individual of, of a human being is supposed to be modeled on this uh, substantiality. Uh, so that the individual human being should try to act as if they were um, uh, a substance, um, uh, an atom, uh, something individuated um, as much as possible, even though. As a, a composite, you can never be fully, uh, you can never behave fully as a, an individuated being in, in that sense because the, the, the composite is always uh, only secondarily individuated. I really like this section as a statement of kind of principles of what he's arguing against. And it just seems kind of like a restatement of some of the things you've been saying earlier uh, in the setup to this section. But um, I really like, you know, essentially this point that you know, if you don't take, as Simonin does, relation to have the status of being then you know it, everything is going to seem like an accident and so there's the that i really like that statement that physics is an ethics because it almost reminds me of a bakhtin kind of thing you know there's no non-oriented uh intervention in life there's no non-oriented uh theory that they're, they're all making a kind of orientated and by definition moralistic claim uh, which even goes back to his discussion of the uh singularities and the clay and the mold example that like you know these examples in ancient philosophy aren't just abstract logical scenarios but they kind of already contain within them you know uh moralistic assumptions about 
how things should be carried out and ignore, you know, in, in the case of the clay, the, the, all the preparation and the half chains that go towards preparing these singularities and preparing the, you know, the colloidal properties and all that stuff we read. But anyway, I just, I, I like this, uh, as Angus was saying, if, apparently he gets into the photons and the much more difficult stuff at this beginning part. Yeah, the only, um, the only sort of uh, qualification I would make to that is that he does, uh, in a little bit, um, he, he specifies that this relationship between physics and ethics that we find in ancient philosophy is partly a, um, uh, a weakness of ancient philosophy um, that later um, when we have, uh, well, he's going to, he's going to um, attribute this to the, the Christian notion of the, of the individual as sort of separating physics from ethics and, and making it possible to have a, a, a true physics of the individual. But we'll, we'll get to that in a, a little bit. But, but yeah, so he, this, this interrelation between physics and ethics is, uh, is not necessarily something that he thinks is universal because he thinks that we can have a physics of the individual, uh, which is not um, determined by, um, by an ethics uh, in the way that the ancient uh, physics was. So um, that's what he's going to work towards. Uh, but it's not to say that there aren't going to be ethical implications of that, uh, of that physics. From what I know from like the Combs book about uh, Simondon's ethics, it seems like for him, maybe it's the other way around. Like the ethics follows from the physics rather than the physics being determined by the ethics. I don't know if that's right though. Yeah, that seems like a, um, a good formulation. Um, I, I think, yeah, we'll see a little bit, a little bit further why he thinks that um, the, the Christian uh, notion of the individual in ethics sort of uh, frees physics from its subordination to ethics, and um, uh, and that sort of makes room for for physics to to develop a, a notion of the individual which is not uh, derived from ethics. So that's that's sort of the the movement of uh, the historical progression of the the notion of the individual for for Simon Don, and and uh, it's also something that uh, one of the um, one of the uh, supplementary texts in the second volume of the translation uh, on, on the history of the notion of, of the individual uh, goes into this in, in more detail, the, uh, the notion of the individual in the atomists and the Stoics um, and how it uh, changes over time. Um, but uh, we'll, I guess we'll eventually get to that, but it'll be months from now. Um, but yeah, I think physics determining ethics um, uh, is a, a better formulation than than the ethics formulating uh, determining the physics. Uh, I just uh, no, we don't have to answer this now, but maybe just something to keep in mind as we're piecing through this stuff is the when we're saying this about ethics. I guess is is Simondon talking about it in terms of like capital E ethics in the sense that like you know we we can't derive the individual or talk about you know physics as he's saying in any kind of classical sense or even like Spinoza's sense of like capital E ethics. But the way I read individuation and transduction and all these things, like there seems to be a very uh, obvious directionality to that as well. That seems to kind of like link up with what I was saying before. So whether he himself acknowledges it, or this is just something that later thinkers like Deleuze and other people will pick up on, you know, is, is it more that he's saying, you know, form the formal philosophical systems of ethics you, you can't use those to derive these things, but that they're, or, or maybe just us as students, like, can we read their, could there be, you know, a, an ethical a lowercase e uh, reading of these things in the sense of 
kind of that like Bakhtinian sense I was saying, like the emotional, volitional directionality or orientation that is kind of inherent in any kind of process of individuation or even participating in it, like thinking about it. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, so I think if I, if I understand correctly, you're talking about um, or making a distinction between um, ethics in the sense of an ethical theory or ethical system and then ethics as um, um, something like uh, a general orientation of action or something like that. Um, yeah, so he's primarily talking here about um, systems of ethics, the, the um, Epicurean and the uh, Stoic systems. I think he would still want to say that um, that we can't have a, a physical notion of the individual, which is not determined by ethics in the, the second sense either, by some sort of um, uh, orientation towards being or something like that, um, or, or orientation of behavior or, or, or whatever you want to, uh, however you want to call it. Um, but um, I think um, more at a, at a higher level, um, the the process of thinking or, or the the process of doing philosophy uh, is itself um, an act of individuation. Um, um, it's it's a, a way in which a human being um, individuates themselves and and um, brings about an uh, an individuation uh, in thought. Um, and there's there's a, a sort of ethical component to that um, in the sense that it's um, uh, it is a, an orientation of uh, um, I think maybe I'm just sort of uh, uh, re re um, rethinking what I'm saying here, but I think maybe it would be a, a better way to capture it would be to describe it as an existential rather than an ethical orientation, um, um, so that. Um, Thinking is always oriented. Uh, um, thinking is something that a, a living individual does uh, for Simon Don. It's always uh, related to um, a, a living being, and it's a process of individuation of that of that being. Um, so, uh, in that sense, there's this orientation to it. But um, I think he wants to preserve some notion of the uh, um, objectivity of the of the physical notion of, of an individual um, so that it, it wouldn't be relative to something like an orientation. It's uh, um, we have the capacity through physical science to um, have uh, knowledge of the, the reality of individuation of, of, you know, real individuals outside of us. Um, so that's uh, something that he wants to hold on to. Yeah. What's interesting is uh, when he's criticizing the atomists here, he seems to be criticizing them for not having finality. So he says, this is, I guess, some ways in, near the end of the paragraph, actually, uh, emerging from a Kleinemann without finality, relation remains pure accident. And only the infinite number of encounters in the infinity of elapsed time has been able to lead to viable, many viable forms. And, uh, oh, and before, relation depends on being, and nothing substantially grounds it in being. And uh, so it seems like Simondon is after some notion of finality here, which is actually oddly Aristotelian. Um, but, you know, so with all the caveats that we've read about hylomorphism and so on, but it seems like he wants relation to be grounded 
in some something like a final cause, uh, whereas that's what was missing in these atomists. And it, they just replaced it with pure chance, it seems. I think actually the way I would articulate it is um, the other way around. Uh, so it's not that um, relation is grounded in finality, but finality is grounded in relation. What, what Simon Don was criticizing uh, the atomists for is not so much the lack of finality, it's, it's the lack of relationality. It's the fact that for them, uh, the atom is a, a simple entity. It's a, a, a simple principle of being, uh, which has no, uh, there's nothing that accounts for how it relates to any other being, but, but it, uh, it's, it, and then the, the uh, chance sort of plays a role of filling in that gap. It, um, um, it uh, accounts for relationality without having a um, without grounding it in the being of the atom. It's it's just something um, external to um, to the atom itself. Um, so there's no um, there's no grounding of relationality in being. Uh, in relation, insofar as it occurs, is uh, something external to being. I don't think finality is. Um, is really the the category that he's looking for here. Um, I think what he's saying is is that the absence of finality in uh, the atomistic system. I always call back to that quote from page fifteen of the text where he says he's talking about why I believe transduction is not dialectical, and he says uh, it's not about there being a second stage negative, but an imminence of the negative within the initial condition through the ambivalent form of tension and incompatibility. So it's not a substantial negative and et cetera, et cetera. But then he says the statement, even time itself is an expression of the dimensionality of the being that is individuating. So I think it, it gets difficult to talk about even an idea of finality because uh, like, I think this uh, citation is like indicating it's even the, uh, you know, the, the notion of a kind of linear time like that is, it's, is a product of the individuating process. Because if we remember in the pre-individual state, at least as I understand it, before there's any phase shifting for Simondon, you know, it's as though, um, I don't want to say it's timeless. I don't know if that's explicitly possible for him, but, uh, you know, it, it, that individuation hasn't occurred yet. And once the phase shifting begins, you get this kind of circularity, you know, there's not a very clear, uh, you know, order from one phase to another and phases can become each other as we've seen with some of the charts. So it, it kind of obfuscates this thing of finality, I think. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, connection. I, I hadn't thought of it in, in that uh, in those terms, um, but I think um, I think you're right that one of the uh, criticisms that Simon Dong makes of the dialectic process, or why he how he distinguishes his, his own uh, transductive process from the dialectical process, is um, the linearity of the dialectic um, un, as he understands it. Um, um, the idea that there's a, a sort of fixed sequence of stages through which the dialectical process goes, um, whereas the transductive process is uh, is not uh, fixed in that sense. It's a it's a, it's a dimension um, that you can go back and forth along. Um, so it, uh, I think, a, a notion of finality seems to require something like linearity, uh, something like a uh, um, an, an endpoint towards which. Um, a process is directed, um, whereas for Simon Don, it's not so much a, um, an endpoint that we want to think about. It's the the dimension along which that uh, action occurs.
uh, and it can occur in, in different directions. So, yeah, I don't think what Simon Don thinks is missing from the atomistic physics is um, finality as such. I think it's um, the absence of finality is uh, sort of a, a symptom of the absence of a, a conception of relationality, which is the real lack. Um, so, um, so yeah, it's, it's that relationality is the fact that um, there's no account for how being comes to be related or how an atom comes to be connected to another atom other than uh, just chance, which is um, almost a, a negative um, uh, conception. Um, so before we, we move on, I think we can we can probably move on. But there's just one point of translation that I wanted to mention is um, because it, it sounds weird in English, but it, it's perfectly normal in French. Uh, if I can find it. So in English, it says uh, it has been said that the atom is minted iliotic being. Um, this is uh, uh, so in French, we have Simone, um, which uh, you could translate. Uh, oh, sorry, we have own money. Um, but you, so you could translate that as minted. That would be sort of like the literal translation. But here, um, what it means is uh, something like broke up. Um, the atom, uh, the atom is broke up, iliotic being, or divided up, iliotic being. I think would be a better translation. Um, so if you're wondering what what the mint was was doing here, then that's that's sort of why it, I think it's just a, a too literal translation. Um, so we can go on to the next uh, page or so, uh, if someone else would like to read. Uh, there is a symmetrical postulate in the Stoic doctrine. There, man is no longer a true individual. The only true individual is unique and universal. It is the cosmos. Only the cosmos is substantial, one perfectly bound by the internal tension of the poor technicon. Uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce that. Uh, um, this creative fire, also called seminal fire, uh, poor spermaticon, is the principle of the immense pulsation that animates the world. Man, an organ of this great body, can only find a truly individual life in harmony with the rhythm of the whole. This harmony, which is conceived as the resonance that harp makers create through the equality of tension of two chords of equal weight and length, is a participation of the activity of the part in the activity of the whole. Although rejected by the atomists, finality plays an essential role in the system of the Stoics. This is because relation is essential for the Stoics since it elevates the part that is man all the way up to the whole that is the cosmos individual. Uh, conversely, for the atomists, relation can only distance man from the individual, i.e. the element, by engaging him in a participation that is in fact disproportionate with the individual's dimensions. In this sense, the ethical intention needed to turn to physics in the ethical intention needed to turn to physics in two opposite directions. For the atomists, the veritable individual is infinitely below man's order of magnitude. For the Stoics, it is infinitely above. The individual is not sought on the order of magnitude of the human being, but at the extremities of the scale of conceivable magnitudes. In both cases, the physical individual is sought with a rigor and a force that indicate how much man feels his life engaged in this search. 
And it is perhaps this very intention that led the Epicureans and the Stoics to not want to take up a common and everyday being as the model for the individual. The atom and the cosmos are absolute in their consistency because they are the extreme limits of what man can conceive. The atom is absolute as non-relative to the degree attained by the process of division. The cosmos is absolute as non-relative to the process of, ad of addition in the search for definition through inclusion, since it is the term that includes all others. The only difference which is quite important due to its consequences is that the absolute of the whole envelops relation, whereas the absolute of the indivisible, indivisible excludes it. Um, yeah, so here we're, we're looking at the opposite side of the uh, relationship between physics and ethics. We have, um, an, in the Stoics, um, we have a, uh, a physics based on uh, um, the cosmos as, the, um, as what includes all what, um, what contains everything. Um, and um, the... Uh, so in ethics, um, we'll see in a little bit, uh, the actual uh, sort of ethical principles um, tend to be actually quite similar between the Epicurean and the Stoic school, um, but they arrive at them from sort of opposite directions so that um, uh, the, the Epicurean, um, the Epicurean school is sort of a bottom up uh, approach to the, the foundations of ethics um, in the sense that it's modeling the individual uh, human being on the atoms that, uh, um, that are the, the simple uh, principles of being. Um, whereas the, the Stoics are, are basing ethics on uh, inclusion within the cosmos. Uh, and, and so the, the notion of cosmopolitanism is a uh, um, a very important one for Stoic ethics, and uh, um, so in each case, they or they proceed in opposite directions, but they end up at sort of the the same results. I mean, we saw finality here brought up, so that seems like he's going to try to address that, which is good. And I was just going to say that, uh, as usual, um, this distinction, it, it, like his critique of hylomorphism, it seems very similar to the Bergsonian distinction and critique of, of realism and idealism as both kind of ultimately relying on the notion, a static notion of substance. Um, I'm interested in where he takes it because I know Simondin's project differs from, from Bergson's, but he, he owes, I guess there's like an inheritance there as well. But um, yeah, I just, I just wanted to note that. I don't have much more to say about that. So uh, Angus has this footnote here for, is this footnote four from Plutarch? Roughly refers yeah. to the Constructive fire that breaches the whole. Okay. Did, did you have any of the previous footnotes as well? Or were they not um, significant? All I said was just that uh, the critique of hylomorphism in Simondon and the critique of, and when he's talking about the ancients here, it, it's very, it, it seems like another kind of Bergsonian move. And uh, even though the projects are different, um, I know I've been reading supplemental material all week on Simondon and Bergson. So there's just an inheritance there that I think is interesting. And when I have a more interesting thought to share, maybe I'll do it. I just wanted to note that this thing of sort of this move of showing that both uh, of these seemingly opposite stances ultimately rely on, they kind of collapse into each other and rely on a similar notion of, uh, of or, or a notion of substance, just at kind of different scales seems you know significant to me um maybe we can pull out some some other stuff from these paragraphs 
I think you're right that the this is a, a sort of Pakistanian um, uh, move, um, setting up the these sort of um, two opposed uh, positions uh, and showing that they they're sort of mirror images of each other, um, and then um, trying to have a, a a third position that sort of overcomes that. Um, that opposition or, or the the common presupposition of those two opposed positions um and um um yeah this is this is a, a sort of a move that that simon does pretty frequently um uh, and uh, yeah so angus mentioned uh, the comments on spinoza and leibniz um in the the previous chapter where where he he describes the um the monads as as being um uh, sort of a broken up notion of substance, but still preserving uh, the the same essential presupposition that being is primarily substance. Uh, so it's the same the same type of move that he's making here. Um, one one point that I, I wanted to sort of bring up uh, in this bit was um, when he talks about. Um, uh, so he says, in both cases, the physical individual is sought with a rigor and force to indicate how much man feels his life engaged in this search. Uh, and it is perhaps this very intention that led the Epicureans and the, and the Stoics to not want to take up a common and everyday being as the model for the individual. Uh, so here's another um, another um, way that the, uh, I guess, existential dimension of, of, uh, of thinking um, um, determines the physics um so that um because the um the role of the individual is something so important um in, in that existential sense or for something like an orientation of uh, a living being um that we we sort of um because it's so important we can't just take something uh every day as a a a paradigm of uh, of what an individual is. We have to either choose um, the atom as the um, the absolutely uh, indivisible, or we have to choose the, the cosmos as the um, the absolutely uh, uh, all-containing um, entity. Either either with either case, we have to um, pick something that is beyond the realm of everyday discourse. As our our model of the individual, because we recognize in the ethical or existential um, sphere or or aspects that individuation is something uh, important and and that goes beyond that goes beyond the everyday. Um, so there's a, a sort of determination of the um, of the physics by the uh, existential or ethical aspect. Something like the virtual is so important to. I think I like Simondon and, and his discussion of crystals and crystals as like the paradigmatic example because when you when you're trying to get away from both finality and the complete like accidental causality of like the Kleinemann, you need to have an account for becoming and change that is purposive in the in the sense that it um, relates to actual like structural elements that exist in a system, but that does not necessarily produce you know consistent results and that can kind of infinitely variegate and evolve and transform. Um, and there's a lot there, I think, that we could, uh, you know, talk, I guess, as we continue to read about, like, to, you know, the, the, it strikes me very similar, again, to, like, a Bergsonian notion of Elan Vital. It's like a, there's a way of allowing for a kind of, um, what's the quote I read recently? 
and this is a quote that I thought was helpful for me, and it's actually talking about Bergson and the Alain Bital. It said, uh, Bergson's, at least his notion of the virtual, is a non-actual dimension always on the verge of actualizing itself. It precedes every actual entity. Um, and it's uh, for him, it's a metaphysical force that guides the evolution of reality, actualizing itself in multiple ways. I don't think that's precise. You can't map that on one to one to Simone, but I think the idea of you, you need to be able to account for ontogenesis for something like, you know, in the example of the crystal, the its ability to continually individuate uh, and have those potentials latent without them necessarily individuate in a specific direction that you could know beforehand. So you can you can go backwards. You know, the retrograde movement of the true, as Bergson calls it, you can go backwards and you can trace a genealogy and you can kind of see how it happened, but you can't go back and then create a bunch of possibles out of that as though there were these equal kind of directions it could have gone. It's it's more uh, complex than that, I guess. Um, I think Simon Don, um, as far as I can remember, he doesn't generally use the term virtual um, or at least he doesn't make it into like a, a sort of a, a category of his thinking the way that Deleuze does. What he what he constantly refers to is potential energy, uh, and and it's the potential energy of of the system that brings about the the work that is uh, the individuation process. Um, so that um, we have a we talked about the, the three conditions that sometimes turn out to be two conditions, um, but it's. Um, it's the energetic condition is uh, one of the, the key conditions of individuation alongside the, the structural and then sometimes the material condition, depending on whether that's uh, separated out as a third one. I'll just start. Perhaps we need to see in this search for an absolute individual outside the human, a desire to seek that does not submit uh, to the prejudices that arise with the integration of man into the social group. The walled city is repudiated in these two discoveries of the absolute physical individual through a self-folding in Epicureanism, through surpassing and universalization in the stoicism of cosmic citizenship. This is precisely why neither of the two doctrines manages to think relation in its general form. The relation between atoms is precarious and amounts to the instability of the composite. The relation of part to whole absorbs the part in the whole. Thus, the relation of man to man is approximately similar in the two doctrines. The Stoic sage remains autarkis kai apathes, he considers his relations with others as part of the ta'uk f himen. It would be great to have those footnotes if we can. The Enchiridion of Epictetus compares familial relations to the occasional gathering of a hyacinth bulb that a mariner encounters while taking a short stroll on an island. If the boatswain shouts that it is time to leave, there is no longer a moment to be delayed by this gathering. The mariner would risk being pitilessly abandoned on the island, for the captain does not wait. Book four of Lucretius's uh, On the Nature of Things similarly treats the human passions based on yearnings, and it partially reduces their meaning to a rapport of possession. In Epicureanism, the only veritable relation is that of man with himself, and in Stoicism, the only veritable relation is that of man with the cosmos. Thus, the search for the fundamental physical individual remained fruitless in the ancients because it was too often diverted for ethical motives towards the discovery of a substantial absolute. In this sense, the moral thought of Christianity no doubt has indirectly and sufficiently provided a service for the research of the individual in physics. By having given a non-physical foundation to ethics, it has unleashed the research of the individual in physics from its moral principle, thereby liberating it. Hmm. Yeah, that's um, the, the passage that I mentioned a little bit earlier, where he, he um, argues that Christianity, by um, 
providing this uh, ethical notion of the individual that is not founded on a physics or that's not tied up with a physics. Um, it uh, frees physics from the, the relationship with ethics um, and then allows us to um, understand, uh, to, to have a physical notion of, of the individual that is not um, just sort of copied from the ethical notion of the individual. Um, and uh, I mean, this is a, actually one point that he doesn't really develop in that other piece on the uh, history of the notion of the individual, um, which is kind of surprising. Um, but uh, it's an interesting argument that I haven't seen made up anywhere else besides here. Right. And uh, um, someone has posted in the, ch in the chat here a, uh, um, a quote from a, a Simon Dong glossary. Um, about the, the concept of real potential um, and uh, as being something that is uh, irreducible to either the possible or the virtual. Um, I think, yeah, I think that, that sounds right to me. Um, um, I'm not sure about the virtual just because, as I said, it's not a, a notion that um, Simon Dong really makes use of um, a lot so that, um, uh, yeah, I, I'm just not sure that it would make sense to um, make uh, that claim. Uh, I don't know if there's enough in Simon Don to say that, um, but uh, it definitely is not the potential or potential energy is, is definitely not reducible to something like um, a possibility in, in Simon Don. It's not um, like a, a copy of reality. Um, um, you know, the, the standard um, Bergson argument about how the possible is sort of copied from reality, uh, I think it is something that Simon Don um, adopts as well. Oh, and then uh, uh, just a note on that that phrase that, uh, so footnote six um, um, exp uh, translates that, that phrase, the Greek phrase, that uh, um, is um, that which is not in our power. And this is what um, a sort of a standard notion in Stoicism is that we, um, we should, our ethical, um, life should be based on what is within our power, which is our own thoughts and, and, and volitions and so on. Um, and then we should sort of um, remain uh, untouched by anything that is with, outside of our power. Um, and, and so this was, um, this was why you could be um, a free person uh, in, in the Stoic sense, whether you're a slave or an emperor, it's, uh, it's all the same. Those are all just external circumstances uh, and true um, freedom uh, it's something that um, that has to do with what is in our power and what we can control um, rather than these external circumstances um, and so that that's what that, um, uh, that that's what that notion uh, means here um, and and so any um, um, any uh, relationship with others um, in in the stoic system is um, understood as being something external uh, and, and uh, outside of our uh, proper sphere of ethical life in that sense um, for, for the Stoics. Does anyone have that Epictetus on hand or, or could we, maybe I'll look for it while we're reading the next sections because I would actually love to read the, um, the, the original passage about the Mariner. Or is it Lucretius? No, it's Epictetus. <clears throat> yeah, that, that, that one is uh, from 
I think to this, um, and then Lucretius talks about the the passions um, and the relationship with um, uh, instincts. Um, that, that's the next bit there. Um, okay, so let's let's go on to the the next uh, couple paragraphs, and we'll finish this um, subsection. Since the end of the 18th century, a functional role has been given to a discontinuity of matter. Allery's hypothesis on the reticular constitution of crystals is an example of this. Furthermore, in chemistry, the molecule becomes the center of relations and no longer merely a depository of materiality. The 19th century did not invent the elementary particle, but it continued to enrich it with relations to the extent that it robbed the particle of substance. This path has led to the consideration of the particle as bound to a field. The final step of this research was accomplished when it was possible to measure, in terms of the variation of energetic levels, a change of the structure of the edifice constituted by particles in mutual relation. The variation of mass linked to a liberation or an absorption of energy, and thus to a change of structure, profoundly solidifies what relation is as equivalent to being. Such an exchange, which allows to state the, rap the rapport that measures the equivalent of a quantity of matter and a quantity of energy, and thus the equivalent of a change in structure, demolishes any doctrine that connects the modifications of substance back to substance as pure contingent accidents, without which substance remains unmodified. In the physical individual, substance and modes are on the same level of being. Substance consists in the stability of the modes, and the modes consist in the changes in level of energy of substance. Relation was raised to the status of being the moment the notion of discontinuous quantity was associated with the notion of the particle. A discontinuity of matter that would con merely consist in a granular structure would still fail to deal with the majority of problems raised by the conception of the physical individual in antiquity. The notion of discontinuity must become essential to the representation of phenomena in order for a theory of relation to be possible. It must not only apply to masses, but also to charges, to the positions of stability particles can occupy, and to the quantities of energy absorbed or expended in a change of structure. The quantum of action is the correlative of the structure that changes through abrupt leaps without intermediary states. Yeah, this bit is a, a sort of a transition to the next uh, subsection. Um, but, um, and, and so some of it uh, takes the take the form of sort of uh, assertions that we just have to take on faith at this point, and they're only demonstrated in the next subsection or, or later. Um, but, um, so he's, he's going to look uh, in the, the next couple sections at the relationship between particles and fields um, in physics. Um, and um, uh, so this is basically the whole of 19th century physics was, um, was about that relationship um, and, and the uh, increasing um, uh, predominance of a, a concept of a field and, and uh, clarification of that concept. Um, and, and so the field uh, is sort of the representative of um, uh, of relation, um, whereas the particle is um, initially conceived as something substantial um, that would only secondarily be related. Um, and then as, over the course of that 19th century, we, we end up with a much more uh, integrated conception of the relationship between particles and fields uh, in, until in the 20th century, we have a, a sort of... Um, uh, complementarity of those two concepts in the sense that, um, um, as we'll see in a little bit, um, uh, light, for example, behaves in, in some respects like a, a particle and in, in other respects like uh, a, a wave. Um, uh, 
which is related to uh, an electromagnetic field. Um, so um, uh, what he points to in that first um, paragraph that I, that I uh, just read um, is the way that um, there's a, a reciprocity of, um, of mass and energy um, in the sense that, um, that there's um, uh, uh, an absorption of energy in, uh, in the formation of a certain structure um, and or emission of energy in, in the transformation of structure. Um, and so there's a, um, you can measure the equivalence of energy and, and mass. You can uh, uh, show the passage from one to the other. Um, and so that it's, um, as, as he says, this demolishes any doctrine that connects the modifications of substance back to substance as pure contingent accidents. Um, so any, any doctrine that would um, treat uh, the relations in which uh, the substance uh, is found as something secondary um, is, um, is no longer possible once we have this um, reciprocity of energy and mass. Uh, and then there's a question in the chat about the, um, the which approach Simono takes to quantum mechanics as he take the, the Copenhagen approach. Um, so we'll see in a, a little, uh, in the, the third section of this chapter, which we won't get to in, until uh, for another couple of weeks, um, he actually does not take the, the Copenhagen approach. Um, uh, so he, he follows uh, Louis de Bray's, um double solution uh, theory of quantum mechanics, um, which I won't get into now, uh, especially because I don't uh, really understand it. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll try to, when we get to that point, I'll, I'll try to explain um, as much as I, um, yeah, pilot wave stuff, um, exactly. Um, um, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a few weeks probably. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, so he, the, for those who maybe are wondering what this is about, is, is a, in the Copenhagen approach, um, quantum mechanics uh, is understood as um, having these um, uh, having to do with with a sort of fundamental probabilistic um, uh, interpretation of of reality, um, so that. Um, these probability functions are uh, basically all we can say about um, the the behavior of certain systems, um, and uh, a number of uh, physicists like uh, Einstein uh, and uh, De Bray um, they were dissatisfied with um, the idea that we could only have a probabilistic understanding of reality, and um, De Bray uh, proposed um, well a couple two different but related theories, um, and uh, they, they're both based on the idea of a, a, an underlying um, causal structure, which um, sort of produces the, the behavior that looks probabilistic uh, uh, from our perspective, but there's a, a, an underlying structure that is deterministic. Um, um, but again, we'll, we'll go into this more when we get to that point, but um, uh, the the idea here is that uh, Simondon takes up this causal approach towards quantum mechanics uh, rather than the um, the Copenhagen approach, which is the the sort of predominant one within uh, physics today. Um, and then in the last bit, the last two two paragraphs just before the uh, end of that subsection, um, so he he talks about the um, the role of discontinuity. Um, um, 
And so he argues, or he, he just sort of asserts it here, and we'll see um, uh, a, a better, um, a, a more developed um, exposition in the next section. But um, if we are only talking about um, uh, discontinuity at the level of um, uh, of the atoms, uh, then we're not really advancing beyond uh, where the uh, ancient um, atomistic physics was. Um, even if our, our um, conception of the behavior of those atoms is more advanced than theirs was, we're still um, sort of working with the same um, ontological uh, structure. Um, so what, what really gets the, the notion of discontinuity um, uh, or that pushes it beyond where the ancient atomists were is um, the idea of a discontinuity of, uh, of action uh, or of energy states. Um, and so this is a, 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 one of the key principles in quantum mechanics is um, um, that there are that there's a, a, a fundamental discontinuity, uh, for example, of um, the states that um, electrons can be in in, uh, in an atom. Uh, so that you can't have um, uh, a continuous uh, variation of energy levels of electrons within an atom. They have to um, belong to a, a, a discontinuous set of states. Um, so there's a, um, th and this was again, uh, something that a lot of physicists found sort of shocking uh, when this concept was introduced at the beginning of the 20th century, um, because there is a longstanding uh, idea within physics uh, and Leibniz um, sets this out. He says, nature doesn't make jumps. Um, so everything in nature would be um, uh, continuous in some sense and would be, uh, um, would, would ha wouldn't have anything like a, a jump in states. Um, and uh, within quantum mechanics, there, there is something like a, a, a jump in states uh, from one energy level to another. Uh, yeah, natura non fecit saltum, uh, nature doesn't make any jumps. Um, um, but again, we'll, we'll get into this more when we get to the third uh, section of this chapter. Yes, uh, the God doesn't play dice uh, quote from Einstein was, uh, um, again, uh, directed towards the, uh, the probabilistic um, nature of, um, of quantum mechanics, which uh, he and, and some other physicists thought meant that quantum mechanics was only a, a sort of um, superficial picture of, of nature. It has to do with our, our knowledge of uh, of various um, states of a system and rather than uh, the system in itself. Um, but um, uh, yeah, we're, we're sort of getting ahead of ourselves on the quantum mechanics bit. Um, but we will see some uh, in the next section, if we, uh, if we pass to the next section, if someone else would like to read, we'll see some discussion of uh, um, quantum effects as well. Uh, subsection two, the antinomy of the continuous and the discontinuous. It could nevertheless be objected that the advent of a quantum physics would be unable to nullify the need to maintain a wave associated with each corpuscle, which is only understood in a hypothesis of the continuity of the propagation, continuity of propagation and a hypothesis of the continuity of the energy exchanges implicated in the phenomenon. It seems that the photoelectric effect alone summarizes this antinomy of the necessity of discontinuous quantities and the equal necessity of a continuous distribution of energy. There is a threshold for the frequency of quote-unquote photons, 
as if each photon had to convey a quantity of energy at least equal to the energy of the escape of an electron from metal. But moreover, there is no threshold for intensity as if each photon could be considered as a way of covering a surface of indeterminate dimension and could nevertheless put all its energy into a perfectly localized point. Perhaps this antinomy would appear less accentuated if the results from the previous analyses could be retained in order to apply them to this even more general case. Here, unlike the case of the crystal, we no longer have the distinction between a discontinuous structured periodic region and an amorphous continuous region supporting scalar magnitudes. But synthesized in the same being and born by the same support, we still have a structured parameter and an amorphous parameter that is pure potential. The discontinuous is the mode of relation which is effectuated by abrupt leaps, like the leap between a periodic milieu and an amorphous milieu, or between two milieus with a periodic structure, with periodic structure. Here, the structure is the simplest, that of a particle's unicity. A particle is a particle not insofar as it occupies a certain place spatially, but insofar as it only exchanges its energy with other supports of energy in a quantum manner. Discontinuity is a modality of relation. Here it is possible to grasp what is called the quote-unquote two complementary representations of the real. And these representations are perhaps not only, or not merely complementary, but really one. This necessity of unifying two complementary notions perhaps stems from the fact that these two aspects of individuated being have been separated by substantialism. And because we have to make an intellectual effort to unify them due to a certain imaginative habit. For a particle, what is the associated field that we must join with it in order to account for the phenomena? For the particle, it is the possibility of being in a structural and energetic relation with other particles, even if these particles behave as a continuum. When a plate of alkaline metal is illuminated by a beam of light, there is a relation between the free electrons contained in the metal and the luminous energy. Here, the free electrons behave as beings equivalent to the continuum. Sorry. Okay. As beings equivalent to the continuum insofar as they are distributed at random in the plate as long as they do not receive enough energy to be able to escape from the plate. This energy corresponds to the escape potential and varies with the chemical composition of the, medical, uh, the metal utilized. Here, electrons intervene as supports of a continuous scalar magnitude and do not correspond to a polarized field. They are like the molecules of an amorphous body in a state of thermal agitation. Supposing that they were localizable, their place would not have any importance. The same thing applies for the particles of the light source. Their position at the instant when the luminous energy has been emitted doesn't matter. Photoelectric effects can be produced by the light of a star that no longer exists. Um, I don't know if I should stop there. 
Yeah, that's fine. Um, again, this is a, a giant paragraph that has a sort of a continuous stream of uh, of thoughts, so that um, any title point is sort of arbitrary. Um, so I, I posted a, a link in the chat about um, about the um, uh, photoelectric effect, uh, which is what he's going to be discussing in the rest of this um, uh, subsection and then the following one. Um, and so this has to do with um, the way that, so if you take a, a piece of metal and um, illuminate it with a light beam, um, then it, it emits electrons under certain conditions. Um, and uh, um, what he points out, or what, what he's pointing to here is that those conditions are um, different than what we would expect under uh, classical physics. Um, so, um, there's a, a threshold of frequency. Um, uh, so the, the light beam has to be of a certain frequency in order for the, um, or it has to be at or above a certain frequency in order for um, um, electrons to be emitted. Um, and then that frequency depends on which metal in, in particular is, uh, is being uh, bombarded by the light beams. Um, um, but the the amplitude of the light wave, so the or the intensity of the light wave, doesn't um, doesn't uh, have the effect that we would expect under classical conditions. So um, you can, uh, as he he will describe a little bit later, um, if you increase the area of the that uh, is being illuminated while diminishing the intensity of the light, you uh, you can counterbalance the two to each other. Um, uh, so as long as the, the product of the area and the intensity remains the same, um, then um, you still get the same rate of emission of electrons, uh, which is counterintuitive because if you're increasing the area, um, that means that, uh, or it would seem, it would seem as if um, uh, when you increase the area, there should be less light on each uh, portion of that area or each um, uh, region of that area um, if we uh, if we think about like macroscopic um, effects uh, uh, like a, if you had a, a stream of water for example instead of light um, and you you um, you spray that water over twice as big an area then each um, uh, point on that area will receive half as much pressure uh, as it would Otherwise, um, that, that's sort of like the the model that, that you can use for a, a classical picture. But in the uh, in this case, in the photoelectric effect, um, it's as if the uh, the light is acting with its full um, the full energy of the light beam is acting on uh, on each point where an electron is emitted, um, rather than being sort of spread out um, over the whole surface. But at the same time the electron can be emitted from any point of the surface so that the light beam is actually present at each point. Um, uh, I'm not sure if I, that sort of um, explanation makes sense, um, but um, yeah, it's uh, the, the photoelectric effect in short is uh, uh, something that seems paradoxical from the point of view of a, a classical understanding of um, uh, of the the way that light would interact with with matter uh, or with particles. Um, so yeah, so the the question um, 
it, it, I don't think it's it's that uh, work that can't be accounted for. I think it's that um, the what what makes it um, um, counterintuitive from a, a classical perspective is that um, the uh, the light beam is in one sense behaving as if it's uh, localized in one point because there's the um, uh, the thresholds um, effects or the thresholds um, um, uh, principle, I guess you could say that um, the the frequency has to be above the thresholds uh, in order for the um, uh, electrons to be released at all. Um, but uh, um, yeah, so it's, it's localized uh, to a, a particular point on the surface so that the, the total intensity of the light beam um, sort of uh, is acting at that one point to uh, release uh, an electron from the surface of the metal. Um, but it's also, in another sense, is not localized because um, you, can, uh, you can spread out the area, you can increase the area on which the light is acting without... Um, sort of uh, diluting the the intensity on any one point of the surface um, in that sense uh, so that you still get um, you still get emission of electrons at the same rate um, even though it would seem like there should be less light hitting each point of the surface yeah so I hope um, I hope that helps to, to clarify that example of, of the, the photoelectric effect um, um, I think is this a form of non-locality? Um, I'm not sure uh, if it's uh, non-locality in the the sense that that's used in uh, in relation to quantum physics. Um, which so in, in quantum physics, non-locality generally refers to um, the way that um, quantum systems um, seem to be able to. Uh, so there, there seems to be a, a determination of. Um, elements of a quantum system that is uh, not tied to um, um, special relativity in the sense that you can have uh, a system where two electrons are um, two electrons are are related to each other so that one has a, a certain state and the other one, the other one has the opposite state. It's only once a measurement is carried out that you can determine what which state uh, one of the electrons has but then as soon as you carry out that um, that measurement you can know that the other electron has the opposite state no matter how far away it is um, so and you can by this means you could um, in principle have something like a faster than light communication um, um, so that you you have um, uh, what what happens here um, where I am uh, can give information about an event happening, um, you know, whatever many light years away, um, which I shouldn't be able to receive information about um, uh, for for many years uh, if the information is transmitted at the speed of light. Um, so that's that's what is generally generally referred to as non-locality in uh, in quantum physics. Um, I'm not sure if this um, instance here, the in the photoelectric effect, would be uh, an instance of non-locality or not. Um, uh, I was um, I was trying to get uh, or, or trying to find someone who um, has a, a a better grasp of physics to um, to come in and help us with this section, but I, I wasn't able to find anyone. Um, 
but uh, yeah, that would be uh, useful if anyone could uh, see if they can figure out um, whether the photoelectric effect is a, an instance of non-locality or not. So we are at, on the contrary, um, on the contrary, electrons behave as structured beings insofar as they are susceptible to escape from the plate. A quantity of energy that is measurable by a certain number of quanta corresponds to this change in their relation with the other particles that constitute the metallic milieu. Similarly, the state changes of each particle that constitutes the source of light intervene in the relation by means of the photon's frequency. The individuality of the structural changes that have taken place in the source is conserved as the energy of the photon, i.e. as the capacity of luminous energy to carry out a structural change requiring a determinate quantity of energy in a precise point. It is indeed known that the threshold of the frequency of the photoelectric effect corresponds to the necessity for each electron to receive a quantity of energy at least equal to its energy of escape. We are led to posit the notion of photon to explain not only this rule of the threshold of frequency, but also the very important fact of the distribution, or rather the availability of luminous energy in each of the points of the illuminated plate. There is no threshold of intensity. However, if the electron behaves as a particle in the sense that each electron requires the supply of a determinate quantity of energy to escape from the plate, it could be thought that it will behave as a particle also in the sense that it will receive a quantity of luminous energy proportionate to the opening of the angle under which it is seen from the light source, according to Gauss's law. This is, however, what the experiment contradicts. When the quantity of light received by the plate on each unit of, the, of surface decreases, there should come a moment when the quantity of light would be too small for each electron to receive a quantity of light equivalent to its escape energy. Yet this moment never arrives. Only the number of electrons extracted per unit of time uh, diminishes proportionate to the quantity of light. All the energy received by the alkaline metal plate acts on this particle that is 50,000 times smaller than the hydrogen atom. This is why we are led to consider that all the energy conveyed by the light wave is concentrated in one point as if there were a corpuscle of light. Right, so that's what I was um, trying to explain there. The, uh, um, the, reason, um, the reason why the, the light wave is depicted as a, a photon or as a, a particle um, of light um, in this instance is because it um, it has a sort of all or nothing effect um, um, no matter how um, no matter how uh, how much you diminish the intensity of, of the, the beam of light um, so there's a, a certain minimum quantity of energy that has to be transmitted uh, to the, the metal plate in order for an electron to be emitted um, um, and so it would seem that uh, if you diminish the uh, intensity of the light beam, eventually you should get below that int intensity, that, that uh, threshold of energy, um, so that you would have a, a cutoff where there would be no more emission of electrons. Um, but what, uh, what turns out to happen is that you just, uh, if you decrease the intensity of the light beam, you just get a, a lower rate of emission of electrons. Um, there's no... Um, sort of minimum intensity of light, you don't get a cutoff effect, uh, you just get a, a gradual decrease in the uh, number of electrons emitted per a unit of time. Um, and, uh, and so the way that this is interpreted is that uh, um, it's as if the, all of the energy of the, the light beam is concentrated at one point of the surface. Um, so that at, he points out this electron, which is 50,000 times smaller than a hydrogen atom, 
which itself is already something uh, tiny um, in macroscopic terms. Um, um, this one point on the surface seems to receive the whole energy uh, of the the light the light beam, so that it still emits. Um, uh, so the surface still emits electrons, um, um, and and that's what's counterintuitive about this photoelectric effect. Okay, no one seems to have um, much to say about this bit. Um, it, it's uh, it takes a little while to sort of get your head around some of the the concepts here. Um, but uh, yeah, Wikipedia has some uh, useful articles on on quantum physics to uh, look into, just to uh, sort of familiarize yourself with some of these notions. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll try to explain as much as I um, understand uh, as we go along. Um, but let's continue uh, to the next subsection. Uh, if someone else would like to read. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry, the, there's a, a question before we go on from Angus. Um, so what does continuity and discontinuity mean here? Um, so in the in the case of, uh, so in quantum physics, the, uh, yeah, in, in, uh, in connection with the electron, um, so the, the discontinuity here is, is, so it's not just, at, so as he points out, we can, um, we can potentially localize an electron um, in space, we can point to where it, it's located, or, although that is uh, a little bit um, uh, difficult to do in, in quantum physics. Um, but that's not the, the sort of primary sense of discontinuity that he has in mind here. It's, it's the discontinuity of energy states. So um, the way that um, the electron um, um, it has this all or nothing effect um, in relation to the light that um, hits the metal surface um, so that uh, the electron either absorbs enough energy um, so that it, it will be emitted from the surface or it, it doesn't. Um, um, it has a, a discontinuous um, a set of energy states or, or a discontinuous um, set of behaviors. Uh, so there's no, um, there's no, um, uh, there's no um, middle ground, um, and then um, and then Adi points to um, in the the whole plate um, or the plate considered as one surface, um, the the mass of electrons um, is uh, um, behaves uh, as a continuum uh, in the sense in the same way that uh, as we saw in the last uh, chapter, the um, the whole mass of the amorphous substance, all the particles within that substance behave as a, a continuum. Um, so here it's just uh, um, through the the, uh, the action of, of large numbers um, that the, the set of uh, electrons in the metal plate acts as a continuum, um, but it's, or I guess a simulacrum of a, of a continuum. Um, um, and, uh, yeah, so there, there's the continuity uh, in that sense, or or the um, um, the uh, um, appearance of continuity, um, and then there's discrete discreteness or discontinuity um, in the energy states. Okay, um, so would someone else like to read the beginning of the uh, of the next subsection? Uh, I can read. Um... I'll just read to like most of the way down the next page, I guess, is another long scientific description. Um, 
subsection three, the analogical method. However, should the value of reality be granted to the notion, should the value of reality be granted to the notion of the photon? It is no longer, is no doubt fully valid in the physics of the as if, but we should ask whether it constitutes a real physical individual. This is required by the manner in which the relation between electrons and luminous energy is effectuated, i.e. ultimately between the state changes of the particles of the light source and the state changes of the particles of the alkaline metal. In fact, perhaps it is risky to consider luminous energy without considering the source from which it originates. Conversely, if we merely want to describe the relation between the light source and the free electrons of the alkaline metal, we will see that it is not absolutely necessary to involve individuals of light and that it is even less necessary to resort to a quote-unquote probability wave to account for the distribution of the luminous energy conveyed by these photons onto the surface of the metal plate. It even seems that the hypothesis of the photon is difficult to conserve in cases where an extremely small quantity of light arrives on a large enough surface of the alkaline metal. The escape of electrons is then sensibly discontinuous, which can be translated into a quote-unquote background noise or shot noise characterized when the currents produced in a circuit by electrons escaping from the metal are amplified and transformed into sound waves as they are collected on an anode uh, due to the difference of potential created between this anode and the plate of photoemitting metal, which becomes a cathode. If the intensity of the luminous flux is reduced further while the surface of the alkaline metal plate is increased, the number of electrons escaping per unit of time remains constant when the two variations are compensated, i.e. when the product of the surface illuminated by the intensity of the light remains constant. However, the probability of an encounter between a photon and a free electron diminishes when the surface of the plate increases density of the light decreases. Okay. Indeed, by acknowledging that the number of free electrons per unit of surface remains constant for every surface, uh, we find that the number of photons diminishes when the surface increases and when the total quantity of light received per unit of time on the whole surface remains constant. We are therefore led to consider the photon as being able to present, able to be present everywhere at each instant of the surface of the alkaline metal plate, since the, the effect only depends on the number of photons received per unit of time and not on the concentration or diffusion of light on a larger or smaller surface. The photon encounters an electron as if it had a surface of several square centimeters but exchanges energy with the electron as if it were a corpuscle on the electron's order of magnitude, i.e. 50,000 times smaller than the hydrogen atom. And the photon can do all of this while remaining capable of appearing in another effect happening at the same time and under the same conditions as linked to a transmission of energy in a waveform. Some bands of interference on the cathode of the photoelectric cell can be obtained 
without disrupting the photoelectric phenomenon. It would then perhaps be preferable to account for the contradictory aspects of the photoelectric method through another method, or photoelectric effect through another method. Right. So here he's so he, he's he's presented the the um, motivation for the notion of a photon. Why why we um, uh, introduce this notion, or why it uh, seems uh, useful to describe light as having this uh, corpuscular structure um, in in certain instances uh, in relation to the photoelectric effect. Um, and then now he's going on to ask whether uh, we should um, accord. Um, a, a status of reality to this representation of light. So uh, should we understand light as having a, a corpuscular structure? Um, and so he sort of gives away his answer at the beginning there. He, he says that uh, we shouldn't um, um, grant the, the photon um, a status of, of a real individual. Um, but his his um, reasons for that are, are going to be developed over the course of this section and, and the following one. Um, um, but uh, yeah, so the the um, effect that he uh, is pointing to in, in that passage um, is what I was describing about the relationship between the the surface area illuminated and the uh, intensity of the light. Um, so that um, it would seem, uh, from a, a classical point of view, it would seem uh, that increasing the surface area um, with uh, with constant uh, intensity of light would mean that each photon or each uh, uh, each um, particle of light has a, a lesser chance of meeting an electron. Um, it's as if you're sort of dividing up the amount of, of energy um, by a greater surface area. Um, but what we find uh, in effect is that it, it has the it behaves in the opposite way so that um, uh, if you diminish the intensity of the light beam uh, while increasing the uh, area illuminated, you can actually compensate for the uh, the um, diminution of the intensity of the light beam so that as long as the product of that intensity and the area stays the same, um, you get the same uh, rate of emission of the electrons uh, from the metal surface. Um, and so this is what is um, um, sort of, um, uh, yeah, strange or, or unexpected about the photoelectric effect. Um, so um, uh, on the one hand, the, the photon is behaving as if it can act over a, a surface of several centimeters on the metal surface. Uh, it, can, it can find an electron um, or it can strike an electron anywhere on that surface. Uh, <clears throat> but then on the other hand, it's acting as if all of the energy it carries is localized at that one point where the electron is, which is, as he, as he said, is 50,000 times smaller than a hydrogen atom. Um, so we, we, seem to, um, we seem to have these uh, two um, different ways of um, the, the photon seems to have these contradictory properties uh, um, that uh, are hard to reconcile with each other. Um, and then he also points out that um, while this photoelectric effect is happening, so while you're um, illuminating uh, a piece of metal uh, with uh, a light beam, um, uh, 
and and that effect has to be understood in in terms of uh, uh, in corpuscular terms in terms of photons. Um, um, at the same time, you can also um, produce effects in the light beam that have to be understood in wave terms, uh, or that are, are uh, in in quantum physics or or in our physics as it is uh, generally understood, it are are presented in light in, in terms of waves. Um, so he talks about the um, uh, uh, sorry, let me just find that um, right. So he talks about um, the uh, bands of interference. So um, if you, for example. Um, so independently of the photoelectric effect, if you just shine a light beam through um, um, a two-slit apparatus, or so a, 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 like a, an obstacle with two slits in it, um, then the light beams that pass through each of those slits will interfere with each other, and you get um, a, a series of dark bands um, um, in the, on the, uh, the wall behind the, the two slits. Um, so, uh, and, and you can produce this, uh, and so this effect is, um, is understood in wave terms. Um, so uh, it, it has to do with the way that the two wa waves of light uh, are interfering with each other. Um, but uh, you can produce this wave effect, uh, this interference, um, which is understood in wave terms, you can produce this at the same time as that same light beam is um, is being used to produce a photoelectric effect, which has to be understood understood in uh, photon or uh, particular terms. So the same light beam uh, can produce one effect, which is has to be understood as a as a, a wave form, uh, and then the other effect, which has to be understood in, in particle form, at the same time. Um, so we're um, we're we're left with. Um, uh, sort of a, a mess uh, where we have these concepts that uh, seem to work in one domain. Um, uh, but then when we try to move to another domain, we have to use a different set of concepts. Um, but then those two concepts seem to be, um, it seems like we have to apply these two uh, incompatible concepts to the same uh, entity at the same time. Um, so uh, this is the, the sort of, um, puzzle that Simon Dolan wants to try to unravel uh, in this uh, in this section and the following section. Um, so let, let's go on to the next um, little bit. Um, we might not have time to read the full page. I have to leave right at four today. Um, but um, maybe if someone else could read, actually, I'll, I'll read um, the next uh, half page or so, and we can discuss. OK. Indeed, if the phenomenon is considered from the aspect of temporal discontinuity that it presents when the quantity of energy received per unit of surface is extremely low, we will observe that the escape of electrons occurs when the illumination of the photoemitting plate has lasted a certain length of time. Everything happens here as if a certain amount of luminous energy were summated in the plate. Consequently, it can be supposed that luminous energy transforms in the plate into a potential energy that makes possible the modification of the state of relation of an electron with the particles that constitute the metal. This would make it possible to understand that the place of free electrons does not intervene in the determination of the phenomenon, no more so than the density of photons per unit of surface of the metallic plate. It will then be referred back to the case of the relation between a structure and an amorphous substance, which manifests as a continuum, even if it is not continuous in its composition. 
Here, the electrons manifest as a continuous substance because they submit to a distribution that conforms to the law of large numbers in the metal plate. This ensemble, constituted by the electrons and the metallic plate in which they are randomly distributed, can be structured by the addition of a sufficient quantity of energy that will allow the electrons to escape from the plate. The disorganized ensemble will have to be organized. Nevertheless, this hastily presented thesis should be critiqued. There are, in fact, other ways of increasing the metallic plate's potential energy, for example, by heating it. Then, starting at temperatures below 700 degrees Celsius, uh, sorry, between 700 degrees Celsius and uh, 1,250 degrees Celsius, we witness a phenomenon called the thermoionic effect taking place, uh, and it is more appropriate to call it the thermoelectric effect. Electrons spontaneously escape from a piece of heated metal. When this metal is covered with crystallized oxides, the phenomenon takes place at a lower temperature. Here, the change in distribution occurs without the intervention of any condition besides the elevation of temperature, or at least in appearance. However, the energetic condition, namely the temperature of the metal that constitutes a hot cathode, is not fully sufficient by itself. The structure of the metal surface is also involved. In this sense, we presume that a cathode can be activated by the addition of metal traces, for example, those of strontium or barium. Thus, even in the thermoelectric effect, there are structural conditions for the emission of electrons. However, as in the case of an amorphous substance that passes to the crystalline state through the spontaneous and even today unexplained appearance of crystalline germs in its mass, the structural conditions of the thermoelectric effect are always present in ordinary conditions when these conditions are energetic. They're present at least on a large scale for a hot cathode with enough emitting surface, but they are present in much more discontinuous manner on a small scale. I mean, I said I wasn't gonna read the whole page, but then I did. Um, um, so we don't. We have just a couple minutes to um, discuss this. Um, so I, I would suggest that we should come back to that same uh, page next time to uh, discuss some of the uh, what's going on there. Um, but what he's pointing to here is um, the uh, so there's the the photoelectric effect that that we've been talking about. So the way that um, a piece of metal which is illuminated by a light beam will emit electrons. Um, and there's also this thermoelectric effect, uh, um, which is that um, a piece of metal, when it's heated to the right temperature, will also emit electrons. Um, and um, so he's going to, so what the, the purpose of introducing this second effect is, um, is that uh, the, the initial, so the, the photoelectric effect, um, um, as we've been discussing, it has this sort of strange interplay between the, the continuous and the discontinuous. Um, uh, and um, it's, it's understood essentially in, in discontinuous terms uh, in the sense that uh, the photon, uh, or we have to understand the, the light beam as acting through in this particulate manner um, uh, as if it were composed of, of photons uh, individual particles, um, whereas in the case of the um, uh, the thermoelectric effect, um, we seem to have um, a continuous uh, effect um, instead. So that uh, it's just the the relationship between the the heat. Uh, the heat is introducing more potential energy uh, into the the piece of metal. Um, which then results in the emission of electrons. Uh, so we have a, something that seems continuous, um, but 
again, he's going to, as we go on further, he's going to um, um, sort of, um, anyway, this opposition is, is not going to be maintained in, uh, in the same sort of absoluteness in which it, it seems to be set out at first. Okay, so it doesn't seem like anyone has any um, comments on that passage. Um, so as I said, let's go back to that same passage on, on page 102 um, um, when we start next time uh, so we can sort of get into this thermoelectric effect a little bit more. Um, but yeah, so thank you everyone uh, for joining in, for your comments, and sorry about the uh, interruption, uh, and see you all next week.